coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast, a pre-4th of July edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. Uh, Curtis, he's got an early start to his 4th of July festivities, and so I am very excited to welcome back Charlie to help me co-host today and close out the June listener mailbag. Charlie, it's great to have you back. Thanks for being here. You guys didn't finish this in June? I mean, what is it? Is it... I, have no, I honestly have no idea what day it is. Is uh, this what happens It's the second, when... right? Second of July. You know, we did not finish it in June. We were going to finish it in June, but we've got so many questions. So this is what happens when I'm not around to organize things? I guess you can say that. Look, life is what it is right now. I'm, I feel like I'm just holding on by a thread. So but I'm... you have plenty of time. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. I spend, uh, I spend three-fourths of that time just ruminating on, oh my God, what's gonna be, my life going to be like if there is no college football. Yeah, your and wife, that's a very depressing thought. Your wife did say you were kind of depressed. Yeah, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm all good. But So Curtis sees off gallivanting, doing whatever he's doing for the 4th of July. So Charlie, do you have any big 4th of July plans? I know this is usually is one of your favorite holidays. You got anything going on? I love 4th of July. Yeah. I grew up on the lake, so it's always fun. So you have lake plans? I do. Okay. So I know this is going to be the most unpopular statement probably of all time. That you hate 4th of July? It, I, I, I'm not a lake guy. I'm not. So p- sell me on why the lake is fun for a, a, a 30-ish something year old man. Why is the lake fun? I don't know. Just hanging out. Can't you do that at not the lake? I mean, you could. It is kind of wild. No, you could do that on my back porch with some drinks and friends. Like, yeah. isn't it? You and the lake just don't really mix. It's just not my thing. No. Like, there's nothing about it that, that is. You and water really just don't mix. Because you don't like the beach either, do you? I don't like to get in the ocean. I, I like the I like seeing the beach, getting drinks and food and all that kind of stuff. I don't get in the ocean because why would you? What 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 possible? There's so much more negative that could happen to you. Like the risk versus reward scenario, it, it's so it's so weighed in favor of the negative. Like what could like think about all the terrible things that could happen to you in the ocean versus like the best case scenario is like oh I I was swimming and, and I have I have having seen, a fun time I guess but what like I have seen video of you running from a jellyfish. Yeah, think about all the dangerous sea creatures out there. And, like, I know, chances are you're probably not going to get attacked or eaten. Sea creatures? Yes, they are sea creatures. Okay. Yes, sea creatures. Did you not consider... Have you seen the thing on social media with the shark? I don't know. I guess it was... I don't know where that was. But the dude's, like, in the water and he kind of has a camera and, like, pans over and sees the shark just looking at him? No. You haven't seen that? You haven't come across that? No. Like... Sure, going out swimming and surfing if you do that thing, not obviously over here in this part of the country, I guess that can be like kind of fun, but like the possibility of like, oh, I turn around and a shark staring me in the face, it's just it's not worth it. All right, so you're obviously not going to the beach or the lake no, for no, the 4th of July. Like, I like, and like jet skis, I, people love them, but like I liked them when I was 14. Like now when I'm in my mid-30s, like what does a jet ski do for me? On, on a lake, bo- on a lake, what does, does it do it, for me? Does it hurt your body? No, Are it's just old? not like, I'm just, I'm like, to me it's just a means of transport. Like is it really that fun? Like what are you doing on a jet ski that's that fun? Like the wind's in your hair. Okay, I don't have any hair, so it's nothing for me. If you're on like a big lake and you can jump waves, yeah, it can be fun. Okay, but the lake that I would go to... Is, very, is dead and dead. there's nothing going on and riding a jet ski is truly just transporting me from one place to another and okay. wasting gas money. So, 
Okay, so no water activities. Got That's it. That's not my thing. I don't know. It's just. What are you going to do? I'm going to watch football. All right. <laughs> and prepare good. for this guy in the enemy series. That's what you do. I think <laughs> that's a good way to celebrate. Yeah, that's that's to that's all that own. honestly that's all I want to do. So I'm very excited for you, but not necessarily my thing. But glad whatever everyone is doing out there, if you're a late person, that's awesome. I'm not trying to like make it seem like you're a bad person if you like the late, Charlie, but it's just not personally my thing. So if you guys are doing that, I hope you guys have an awesome and very safe time. Whatever it is that you might be doing, if you're working, I hope that you don't have to work too hard. But uh, yeah, so I guess. And do think about your neighbors when you are setting off fireworks because people don't want to hear those at twelve o'clock or later at night. And I'm, dogs. Not a firework guy either. I don't, I, I, that's another thing about Fourth of July. I've never, even as a kid, I never understood the fascination of fireworks. Okay, bang, boom, awesome, like. They're pretty. But okay, I mean they're not ugly. It's okay. Just they're, go they're, watch your football. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's okay. fine. Like, I, I'm not again. I'm not saying people are wrong if they like them. I just don't like personally understand like why a firework is like so. Crazy awesome. I guess some people find them interesting. It's okay to. That, that's cool that they do. It's cool that they do. It's just not again. Fourth of July is just not my thing. That's like fine. go America. That's awesome. But <laughs> right uh, now, I don't hey, know. no, always go America. Like no, always go America. Oh. Always got to be on the on the right side of history. But uh, all right. Anyway, enough of that. Let's. We got a ton of questions to get to. We didn't come close to finishing all of them on the first edition of this. That was as Charlie said, actually in June. I know this is technically July now. But we want to make sure we get everybody's question. We actually had a couple more sent in after we posted the first episode. So we got a lot to get to. So Charlie, go ahead. You're going to host this today. What you got for me? All right. I tried to group the questions together by topic. Um, so we're going to start with a batch of questions about the offense. Dogs Axe has our first two questions. With how simplistic spread offenses are, do you think it's going to take our offense a while to get things rolling? He used to be of the opinion that you needed an entire year to implement an offense. While that still may be true, he thinks um, you can make it happen in one season. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I totally agree with that assessment. And, I, and I've, I've talked about this before on the show. A lot of people, when you talk about like offensive masterminds, they talk about like teams that run spread offenses, like Hugh Freeze back in the day at Ole Miss, or... Gus Malzahn and Auburn, but the fact is, guys, I know it it was new for us for so long that it just looks so, I guess, fancy and exotic, so we thought it was like, man, this has got to be super complicated, but like, no, if you actually break down a spread offense, they are infinitely less complicated than your traditional pro-style attack. They, they just, that, that's just a fact of the matter. Like, like, if you talk about RPOs, those are one of the most, that probably is the most uncomplex play in all of college football, because the quarterback is literally reading one person. You pick out one person for the most part, and whatever that person does, whatever that defender does, you have an answer for it. So they're, they're really, really far less complex than what we have been running over the past couple of years since Kirby Smart's taken over. So I think it's a really good point, and, I, and I've heard this before. Obviously, you know, when you, anytime you have a new coordinator come in, the talking point all offseason is going to be is, oh, well, that team, in this case Georgia, they're working in a new, a new offensive scheme, a new coordinator. So how long is it going to take for them to adjust to that new scheme. Well, how long did it take LSU to adjust to the new scheme last year, Charlie? Not long. Not very long at all, right? Like week two, they, they went to Texas and won that game and they were off and running. So, and I know that's not always the case, but when you're running spread offenses, the fact is it's a much quicker transition than it would if you're if you were going from a spread offense to a pro style attack. There's just a lot more responsibility on quarterbacks. There's a lot more verbiage, all sorts of stuff. It's, it's just far less complex. So I do agree with you there. Acts on this one. Um, however, I would say in this particular case, in, this, in just this one particular offseason, 
this whole transition to our new offense, whatever it's going to look like. And that's the thing about this offense. We're not exactly sure what it's going to look like. We have ideas, and there's some clues. You can go back and look at, at Munkin's past history at Oklahoma State and Southern Miss and with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And you can, you can get, I think, get a pretty solid idea. But the fact is we don't know 100% for sure exactly what this offense is going to look like. But I, I do think we're going to spread out more. There will be more spread principles built into our offense than what we've seen over the past four or five years. But it's going to be complicated this year with the fact that we had no spring practice. This whole pandemic situation has complicated things tremendously in terms of like players getting familiar and comfortable with the system. And also, I think this is an underrated aspect of it. Like people talk about, well, the players are like they're not going to be as comfortable with the system. What I'm more concerned about actually is how familiar are the coaches going to be with the players that they have to work with. I know most of the offensive staff is back, but Todd Munkin is the guy who's designed this offense. He's the guy calling the plays, and he needs to have a strong familiarity with the talent that he has to work with on this roster so he can go about designing the offense. Like Basically, what spring practice was going to be was going to be a crash course in his offense and kind of just implementing the basic stuff, which is kind of what you do with the, with the install in spring practice. And then once the coach, the new coach in particular in this case, gets a feel for the players he has to work with, then he spends the rest of the spring and the summer working on designing his offense even more so to fit the skill set of the players that he has at his disposal in this next upcoming year. And we didn't really have an opportunity to do that. Todd Munkin has not had that opportunity. So if there is anything that concerns me about the transition offensively this year, it's that. Not so much the players getting up to speed. Like, they're going to be fine. I, I really like being able to do the meetings and things like that over Zoom uh, during the pandemic. And then the I guess the extended version of, of camp this year, I think the players will be fine. It's more so like, are our coaches have enough time to figure out the guys they have to work with and put in this system uh, before, and I guess work that into the system before we start game planning for our first game against Virginia coming up Labor Day weekend. All right. Dogs Axe with the next question, too. Do you think having the July practices will make up for the time lost in the spring? It almost seems like we're having OTAs, if you asked him. Charlie, you know what OTAs are? You told me, but I forgot. Outside, no. Uh-huh. Try it. Other team together. activities? Very close. Other team activities? Why would we care what other teams out, are doing? Out, I don't know. Organized team Organized. activities. Organized. That's go. that. It's okay. You. When's the last time you sat down and watched like three minutes of an, of an NFL game? Um, years. Ever? Have you ever? Sat, I guess you, we, yeah. we went to one back in the day. Yeah, but I don't A group of us went to one, to the Falcons game. Organized team activities. Yeah, so you're obviously not an NFL fan, so I wouldn't expect you to know. Well, I also haven't had to use my brain regularly lately, so. That has been a problem for me also. I just forget It's weird. Yeah, my mind is not working. It's strange. Uh, But yeah, so OTA, it's an NFL term, Charlie, for anyone else who might not be an NFL fan. I think most of you listening here probably are familiar with that term, uh, which is based like minicamp, that kind of thing. Uh, So yeah, this is another good point, uh, Axe. I'm with you here. Like, I think that it helps, okay? I think the fact that we missing spring sucks, honestly. And I'm really frustrated by the fact that there are some teams that got at least a portion of their practice in, like Clemson. I think South Carolina got a couple in as well. Clemson got most of theirs in. I'm, I'm frustrated by that. And I, I guess that's just the situation we're in and, and whatever. But so if you guys haven't heard, I think most of you have. Again, if you listen to this show, chances are you've heard this. But in case someone might have missed it out there, what they've done to – the NCAA has allowed teams to do to kind of make up for missing spring practice is like extend – the, the 
fall camp a little bit, I guess. It's not really, and Axe does a good job of describing it. It is kind of like OTAs. Basically, we're going to have two weeks leading up to fall camp where players can go do walkthroughs. That's that's all they're allowed to do. They're, but here's the thing. They're not allowed to wear pads, no helmets even. They're basically just doing walkthroughs in shorts. Like you would do the day the day or night before a game. Like, like teams do, like if they're on the road in the team hotel the night before, they'll get the guys up and go to the ballroom and like walk through the, the game plan and, and the, uh, the, the first series or whatever it might be. That's essentially what we're going to be able to do with the players for those two weeks leading up to the traditional fall camp that will start the first week of August uh, leading into the 2020 season. So it, that's better than nothing, but it's not really, in my opinion, it's not a, a real full-on replacement for the spring. Because in the spring, you are in pads most of the time, and you do get those physical live reps. And sure, walking through a, a rep is, is something. It's better than nothing. But look, anyone who's played football, you know that's certainly not the exact same thing. It's really not even close. So look, I, yeah, I think it, it's better than nothing. I, I appreciate the NCAA allowing teams to do that. But it's I don't think it's going to truly make up for the loss of spring practice. And I also am frustrated by the fact that, again, like teams like Clemson who got some of their spring practices in also get the, the two extra weeks leading into fall camp as well. To me, like, what I would have done if I was in NCAA is like, hey, depending on the number of practices you got in for the spring before everything was shut down, you have to subtract those from the number of walkthroughs that you can get in those two weeks leading up to fall camp. But that's not going to happen. The NCAA is just incapable of making any kind of sense. So whatever. Um, yeah, so better than nothing, but I don't think necessarily ideal. All right. Damian wants to know, what are the chances of Georgia's offense making an LSU-like jump in 2020? Yeah. Shooting for the stars. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So, look, it's not it's not impossible because LSU did indeed themselves make that jump last year. And, I, and when I saw this question, I, this one really jumped out to me. And I wanted to kind of go dig into the numbers and just take a look and see, like, as you guys know, like, when I, when I give you my opinion, I try to have that opinion based on facts and information as much as I possibly can. So I, I, I did that. I crunched the numbers here, and I went back, and, I, and so I looked at what LSU was in 2018 and what they were in 2019. Like, how much of a jump did they actually make? Because if I'm going to answer this question, I need to first know how much of a jump did LSU actually make before I can determine can we actually make that kind of jump. So if you went back and looked at LSU in 2018, they went from 69th nationally in total offense at, at 402 yards per game to first nationally in 568 yards per game. So that's 166 more yards per game than they averaged in 2019 versus 2018. If you look at their points per game, so scoring offense, they were 38, really not that bad scoring offense in 2018, 32 points per game, which was 38th nationally. They jumped all the way to first nationally with 48.4 points per game in 2019. That's 16 points per game more uh, year over year. So that is basically, they were two touchdowns better offensively last year than they were in 2018. Now, if you look at our stats in 2019, so here's where we were. And actually, and the reason I bring up our stats is because I was curious, like how similar was our offense last year statistically to the LSU offense in 2018? Because I think that's an important point here. And what I found out was that actually we were pretty similar last year offensively to what LSU was in 2018. Last year, we uh, in total offense, we were 61st nationally at 408 yards per game, which was six yard, we averaged six yards per more per game last year offensively than LSU did in 2018. Uh, passing offense, we were 72nd nationally at 233 yards per game, which was five less than what LSU averaged in 2018. And then in scoring offense, we were 49th nationally at just under 31 points per game, which was 
just a little bit more than one point behind where LSU was in 2018. So we were re- remarkably similar from a statistical makeup last year offensively when compared to LSU's offense in 2018. So I think when you look at that, okay, all right, that's our starting point. Now you have to ask yourself, okay, so LSU made this dramatic jump offensively. So what exactly accounted for that jump? And I think once you answer that, you have to then kind of cross-reference that, compare it to our roster and our coaching staff to see if we had the pieces to do what LSU did in order to make that big jump from 2018 to 2019. So I think there's three factors you look at here. Number one is coaching. All right. You got number two, skill personnel. And number three, quarterback. So let's, let's take it one by one here. So the coaching, obviously LSU brings in Joe Brady from the NFL. He brought in fresh concepts that they had not been running. Their offense was even more antiquated than our, our offense has been in terms of the, what pro style offense they were running. And what they did from a coaching standpoint, and I don't want to go too far in the weeds on this because it's there's a lot they did, but try to kind of just streamline this a little bit here. They, they did a lot, of, a ton of 11 personnel. Actually, they ran 11 personnel, which is one running back, one tight end, almost exclusively. And they did that with very versatile skill players that keep you from having, that kept them from having to sub. So what I mean by that is, so they could, they could go from uh, down by down with the same personnel and never have to sub. They could, they could run the ball with the same personnel that they were using when they spread out and had five guys out wide and nobody in the backfield with an empty backfield. So that versatility allowed them to be extraordinarily effective and they'd all operate out of 11 personnel. They had Clyde Edwards, a layer for the most part as their tailback and then obviously you've got Thaddeus Moss as, as the tight end. And then once they're, they've established it with 11 personnel, they were sending five guys into routes nearly every time they threw a pass. Uh, and, I, and I wanted to see, okay, let's compare that again, 2018 versus 2019. How many times they send five guys into routes? And so basically what that is, like if you send five guys into routes, you do, you're not going max protection. LSU used to be a heavy max protection offense. So in 2018, they had 300 pass plays. They had six or more blockers, okay? Last year, they had 89 the, through the first 13 games of the year. The reason I'm using first 13 games is they, they played 13 games in 2018. So 300, pla- 300 pass plays, they had six, six or more blockers in 2018, only 89 through the first 13 games last year. So almost three times as many in 2018 versus 2019. So that's another thing. They also really used motion very skillfully to, to force defense to declare what their coverage was, which made it extraordinarily difficult for defenses to disguise coverage. And then on top of all of that, you throw tempo into the mix. And so now a defense, you can't sub as a defense. Because remember, LSU doesn't have to sub because their personnel is so versatile, they don't have to sub ever. And so based on down and distance as a defense, you still want to sub to get your, your specialized packages in there. But when they add tempo into the equation and they're not subbing, well, it makes it really, really hard for you to sub. So that's what they did from a coaching perspective that made, that's kind of a crash course of what they did from a coaching perspective that made them so effective last year. So can we do that this year? We'll come back to that in a question in just a minute here. And then you look at the skill person that was the second factor. So they had they they have these new concepts, these fresh concepts from a coaching perspective, but that's great, but you gotta have the players on campus to make those concepts work. You gotta have the skill players. And they did that. They had Clyde Edwards Hilaire, kind of like a a hybrid running back. We've talked about how hybridization offensively has become the new wave in college football. Clyde Edwards-Alaire was that hybrid tailback. You've got Jefferson and Chase at wide receiver, which was as good of a duo as you had in the country. You got Thaddeus Moss with kind of that hybrid tight end. So they had the skill personnel to run this system and the concepts that Joe Brady brought from the NFL. And then the third factor here is the quarterback. 
obviously we know Joe Burrow put up, I mean, really the best season for a quarterback that I've ever seen in college football. He was exceptionally accurate. He was extraordinarily effective under pressure. And here's a stat that I found that just blew my mind. It's still, I don't understand how this is possible. Joe Burrow was so effective under pressure. He had a higher grade according to pro football focus. He had a higher grade as a passer under pressure than 84 other FBS quarterbacks had with their clean pocket grade. That is just pure insanity to me. I don't understand how that's remotely possible, but it was possible because he had very good poise back there. He was in control. He had extraordinarily underrated mobility, which finally got the love it deserved because his mobility was a big part of what they were doing. And he was just he was just so effective at running what they ran. So I think you have to look at that when you say, okay, can Georgia make the jump? Look at coaching. Do we have the skill personnel? Do we have that kind of quarterback? So from a coaching perspective, here's what I would say. I think Todd Munkin, and people can call me crazy. I know Joe Brady's Mr. Extraordinary. He's the superhero in the coaching ranks right now. I get that. But Todd Munkin, if you look at his resume, he's got a better resume, a more at least a more extensive resume, more years of success than Joe Brady did, and more experience than Joe Brady. I, I'm not saying he is Joe Brady, but I don't think he's that far off, honestly, if you look at his resume. Uh, he averaged, you know, in, in 2011 at Oklahoma State, that offense averaged 549 yards a game. That was about a decade ago. And that was only 20 less than LSU averaged last year with all the innovations that have been made offensively over the past decade. In 2000, that same year, 2011, uh, Brandon Whedon, we're talking about Brandon freaking Whedon here, right? He washed out of the NFL. He averaged only 15 less yards passing per game than Joe Burrow did last year. Now, again, that was a decade ago. Uh, Nick Mullins at, at Southern Miss. In Munkin's final year as the head coach at Southern Miss, averaged 320 yards passing per game. If you look at his best year in the NFL as offensive coordinator with the Buccaneers, Jameis Winston and Ryan Fitzpatrick that year combined for over 5,300 passing yards. So I think from a coaching perspective, we're set. I really believe that. And I know it's the first year, but again, as going back to Axe's question, I don't think it's as cumbersome to implement this kind of attack, at least the attack I expect us to have, as it would be a pro-style attack. So I'm hopeful that we have the coaching that we need now from a schematic standpoint. So that takes us to factor number two, skill personnel. Do we have the kind of personnel that they had at LSU last year to operate that kind of system to that level of effectiveness? Honestly, here's why I would say probably not. I think George Pickens is, the, he's the only player that we have that's close to a proven commodity to match anything close to what Jefferson and Jamar Chase were for LSU last year. D-Rob might come on this year and be that guy, but we have seen no evidence to suggest that's going to be the case. I hope I hope he does. I hope he lives up to what we thought he was going to be, but we haven't seen that yet. Don Blaylock come off an ACL, and we saw some promising things last year, but he's not that kind of receiver. He's a really good player, but he's not a, a Jefferson Chase kind of guy. We've got a bunch of young guys coming in this year, and I'm, I'm really high on all of them. We talked about that in part one of the mailbag. And I, I'm very hopeful and excited about what they can be, but I don't know if we can just expect them to be that right now in year one. We haven't seen it. it could, it's possible one of them could step up and be that guy in year one, but we don't know that yet. So I, I have some concerns there for, in terms of do we have the kind of seal personnel to match what LSU did last year. And I'll also say this. I know everyone's expecting Zamir White, and I think I am too, to be, well, I guess I am, to be that feature back this year. But I think, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. This this idea that we're just assuming that Zamir White is going to be the number one back this year and not a guy like James Cook, for instance, I think that's based off of us working from the framework of the offense that we've had for the past two decades, this pro-style attack. Because Zeus fits that. 
But if we're going to go to a more up-tempo spread type attack in the vein of LSU, and obviously it's not going to be a carbon copy of what LSU did, but there's going to be some similarities there. If we're talking about hybridization being the key factor in offenses this, these days, James Cook is that guy. He would like... For us to be able to run the, anything close to the offense that LSU ran last year, they're sending five guys into routes and they're not and they're not subbing and they can basically run anything they want from the same personnel grouping. James Cook would have to be the feature back in that scenario because as good of a running back as, I, as a runner as I think Zamir White can be and is going to be, he's not that kind of guy out of the backfield in the passing game. He, he has not shown that yet, at least. So I think Cook, if, if we were going to move more towards that type of offense that we saw from LSU last year, Cook would be the choice there. All right. But again, we don't know exactly what the offense is going to look like. So I just want to throw that out there. Uh, and then finally, the quarterback. That was obviously a key part of what LSU did last year. Are we going to have the quarterback play to come close to doing what LSU did last year? And on the surface, you would say, that's impossible. Joe Burrow, as I said, put up probably the best court, best season in modern college football history from the quarterback position. So how in the world can we expect whoever it is as our quarterback, probably Jamie Newman still at this point, how can we expect him to just have that kind of season? And I think that's a fair question. And I would, I would say, honestly, I don't expect him to have that kind of season. I think that's um, a little aggressive in your expectations if that's what you're thinking. But I, I went back and looked at it. I was curious. I was like, okay, so let me compare Jamie Newman's numbers last year to what Joe Burrow put up in 2018. Because let's remember, guys, we all know famously that Joe Burrow in 2018 was not Joe Burrow version 2019. We all know that. No one saw that coming. So could it be a scenario this year with, with a new coordinator, a new system, that maybe Jamie Newman can make a similar kind of jump. And so to decide if that was possible, I want to go back and look, okay, how similar were Newman's numbers last year to what Joe Burrow did in 2018? And here's what I found. So Newman in 2018 completed 61% of his passes. Joe Burrow, I'm sorry, this was Newman in 2019. So this is Newman last year. Last year, Newman completed 61% of his passes. In 2018, Burrow only completed 57.8% of his passes. Last year, Newman averaged 7.9 yards per pass. In 2018, Joe Burrow averaged 7.6 yards per pass. Last year, Newman threw for 2,800, basically 2,800, a little bit short of 2,900 yards. 26 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. Burrow in 2018, 2,894 yards passing, 16 touchdowns, five picks. So fewer touchdowns for Burrow, fewer interceptions. Uh, and then from the from a running perspective, they're also remarkably similar. Now Newman ran the ball a little bit more than Burrow did in 2018. But their yards per rush was almost identical. Newman had 574 yards rushing last year, 3.2 yards per rush, six touchdowns on the ground. In 2018, Burrow had 399 yards rushing, 3.1 yards per rush, and seven touchdowns on the ground. So their numbers, if you look at Burrow at 18 and Newman last year, are remarkably similar. So the question you have to ask yourself is, okay, so they're starting from a very similar point there, but is Newman going to make the kind of jump that Burrow did last year? And I just... I can't see her with a straight face and say, I expect that. I think we have the coordinator to do it, but not having spring practice, I, I do think it's going to be a blow in that regard. And honestly, watching Newman play, I'm really excited about what he brings to the table. I do think he he's, he has a little bit of a different running style than what Burrow had. Uh, Burrow was kind of a, a crafty, deceptive runner where Newman is more so a, of a physical type runner. So a little bit of difference there. But watching him play also in the passing game, he I think that that Newman throws a better deep ball, a more accurate deep ball than even what Joe Burrow did. But Burrow in the short intermediate game was so deadly accurate. And I think that if there's a shortcoming in Newman's game as a passer, it's that. I don't think he's terrible in the short inter- in the intermediate range, but I think he's a little less accurate there than he is throwing the ball vertically down the field. So I don't know 
if I actually, I'm gonna say I don't know. I I don't expect Newman to make that kind of jump. So all in all, I know it's kind of a long-winded answer. All in all, here, I think we have the coaching staff and the scheme this year that's gonna match what LSU did last year. I just don't think we have the skill personnel and the quarterback. While I'm really high on Jamie Newman, I can't sit here with a straight face and say he's gonna be Joe Burrow. So no, I do not think that we're going to make an LSU type jump. However, I will say I think we'll make a significant jump. Um, not quite to the degree that LSU did last year. But I can see us averaging 500-ish yards a game offensively this year and averaging in the 40s in terms of points per game. I can certainly see that uh, with a new scheme, with a new quarterback, a guy I think is going to fit the scheme very well, and some weapons that I think that we're going to have offensively that we didn't have last year. I just don't know if we have what LSU had in 2019. Okay, well, thank you for that. Yeah, I know. That was, that was a very, long one. Very um, thorough answer. That was a good question. It deserved a really good answer. I regret not looking at the clock when you started answering that question to I can go check that later it was yes you can let us know I'm not I'm not apologizing all right <laughs> Reggie would like to know which personnel grouping do you think the dogs will show more this year 20 or 12 yeah so again I think again most of you know this but if you don't uh, the, the numbers of the personnel groupings the first number is the number of running backs you have out there in the personnel group and the second number will be the number of tight ends so you have five skill players out there so if you have 20 personnel means two tight end or two running backs zero tight ends which means you have three left over right five minus two equals three i think that's right charlie right five minus two is three yes yes okay i always gotta check myself when it comes to that so that means you have three spots left over for wide receivers so 20 personnel is two running backs zero tight ends three wide receivers 12 personnel be one running back two tight ends and then two wide receivers so yeah, I, Reggie, I'm with you with this idea of trying to get more running backs on the field. I was big on this idea last year and we did it occasionally, but not near often enough. Because if you think about it last year, I know that's, it's irrelevant to what's going to happen this year, but it was frustrating last year because we know the deficiencies we had at wide receiver, but we had a really good running back room. So it just made all the sense in the world to me to put more than one of those running backs out there. Uh, on any given play but we just and we did it again occasionally just not near off enough for my liking we kept throwing out guys like Matt Landers and Kyrus Jackson and I think Kyrus would be a good player but guys that just I, I don't think those guys I don't think the value they brought was near what a guy like like Zamir White would have brought to the table or James Cook if you throw them out there with a DeAndre Swift so yeah I'm with you on this question Reggie and to answer your question do I see more of that this year I think I'd go obviously go back and look at Todd Munkin's past and see okay has he done more of that than what we've seen the past couple of years? And so if you go back to Southern Miss in 2015, which is his final year as the head coach there, and he was he was the leader of that offense. So they used 20 or 21 personnel a combined 47% of the time. And, they, and then they used 11 personnel 47% of the time. So that's they were basically in 20, 21, or 11 personnel. What's that? Uh, whew, this is a tough math for me. I think it's 94% of the time in 2015, and they were in 20 personnel roughly 20% of the time. So one out of every five plays, they were in 20 personnel. Now compare that to what we did last year. We had five total plays. And guys, all these numbers are courtesy of Pro Football Focus. Um, So I want to give them some credit there. I didn't go crunch all these numbers by myself. I don't have near enough time to do that. So I want to give them some credit here. So according to Pro Football Focus, we had five plays total last year without a tight end. So we were certainly not in 20 personnel. I don't know if we were ever in 20 personnel last year, to be honest with you. We saw some 21 personnel, but I don't know if we were ever in 20 personnel. Uh, 12 personnel, so that's one running back, two tight ends last year. We were in that 23% of the time. So I think based off what we've seen from Todd Munkin, I would say you're going to see more 20 personnel and less 12 personnel based on his history. 
So yeah, I think there's a very good possibility, and I, I think you're going to see a guy like James Cook be out there with a guy like Zemir White more often than we have in the past. So great question there, Reggie, and I think you're onto something there. All right. That wraps up the offense-specific questions. So next up, we have a pair of general team questions. The first one is from Bobby. This is the time of year where I worry constantly about a key player getting injured or in trouble off the field. Bobby says he knows things are different this year with COVID, but which player do you think we absolutely cannot afford to lose in the preseason? Yeah, that's a good question. Also, I, mean, I guess this would extend not just to the preseason, but like in season, if we get into a season, who could we least afford to go down with coronavirus, right? Could all just come crumbling down. Yeah, but like instant. which player could we least afford to like come down with and be coronavirus positive like the Friday night before the Florida game, right? Um, and there's two guys that jump to mind to me, one offensively and one defensively. Offensively, it's it's George Pickens. And I know you would a lot of people would say, what about Jamie Newman? Well, depending on if, and maybe Jamie Newman if JT Daniels does not get his eligibility this year. But I've kind of changed my tune on that. The more I think about that, the more I think it's likely that Daniels does get his eligibility this year. So if that happens, I don't, I'm not going to say it would not be a blow to lose your potential starter, at quarterback, but I think we would it would not be as much a blow if you lose a guy like George Pickens because right now who do we have out there at receiver that can give us anything remotely close to what George Pickens gives us? And I don't think we have anyone right now. May, again, maybe one of those young freshmen comes in, Roseme, Burton, Smith, Robinson, whoever it might be. Like maybe one of them does. Maybe more than one does, and it wouldn't be as much of a blow to lose Pickens. But based on what we know right now, I think Pickens is the one guy that we just can't really replace offensively. I mean, look, you don't want to lose anybody. But like I say, Zamir White, if you lose him, God, for God, please just don't let that happen to this poor kid, man. He's worked so hard to come back. But like, you have James Cook, you have Kendall Milton, you're, you're going to be okay. Uh, if you lose a, let's say, a Trey Hill, God forbid, don't want that to happen to Trey Hill at center. Well, you have another five-star on the wing is Clay Webb sitting there uh, right behind him. So I think we would be okay there. But Pickens, man, if you lose him, I, we might be all, all, it might be 2019 all over again from the receiver perspective. So he's the one offensively that comes to mind. And defensively, I'm not saying he's the best player in the defense. I just think he's the one that would be the toughest for us to replace right now, and that's Richard LeCount because he has so much experience in the secondary. And as good as Lewis Seen is, he's, he doesn't have that experience right now. But here's the big thing of why I would put Richard LeCount up there. Who are our backups of safety right now? We have, I feel really good about Lewis Seen. I feel really good about Richard LeCount. But if one of them goes down, who's coming in behind them? Like, what is the two deep back there? And that's a concern I have defensively right now. I love our defense. I think we have so much depth everywhere else. But safety, and we have a lot of DBs that can, like, jump in there and make that transition from maybe star or corner to safety. And I'm sure we got, got we have guys cross-training, but I don't know. Like, I mean, is Keely Ringo going to be a guy that's going to cross-train back there? Devon Wilson, is he a guy you put back there potentially? Uh, I know we have Latavius Breen that's still on the team. Jalen Kimber coming in as a true freshman. But, I, like... The gap between what we what would have with Richard LeCount and whoever that might be behind him, I think is pretty is pretty significant right now. So I think he's the guy defensively that we cannot afford to lose in the preseason. Uh, not to mention the fact that he's also now a senior leader. But look, I mean, we have guys that are good, like Jordan Davis. It'd be really tough to lose him. I think he can be a dominant defensive tackle. I would hate to see Azizo Jolari or Eric Stokes go down or Monty Rice. But we have guys that can step up and replace them more easily than we could, I think, a guy like Richard LeCount. So I would say LeCount on defense and Pickens on offense. Okay. Another general team question from Jonathan. 
What's your prediction for the percent of snap counts for the stacked inside and outside linebackers, and how might this change from the first few games to later in the season? That's another really good question. Uh, so I, I, here's another one where I went back and, and looked at the numbers. And if you look at the percentages last year, the, the percentage of our total defensive plays that they ran last year, or that they participated in last year, you got Monty Rice that came in. He, he was in on 62% of our defensive plays last year. Tay Crowder was in on 54%. He's gone, obviously. So somebody's going to replace those snaps. Nicobe Dean, as a true freshman, was in on 26% of the snaps. And Quay Walker was in on 23% of the snaps from the inside linebacker position. So I think Monty Rice will stick right around the 60% range. He's going to be uh, he's going to be a, a key player for us defensively. Obviously, we all know that. He's going to be the lead inside linebacker for us on standard downs. But he is not going to be playing on third downs. He has never really played third downs his entire career in Athens. We have other guys who specialize in that, whether it's Nicobe Dean and Quay Walker. That's not Monty's role, but he's going to be in there on, on standard downs, first and second down situations where we're not in our dime defense. So I'd say about 60 to 65% of the snaps sounds about right, stick right around where he was last year for Monty. Tay Crowder's gone, so he's, somebody's got to jump up and take some of those snaps. So I think N'Kobe Dean would be the guy, right? I, and I love Quay Walker. Actually, here's what I would say. I think Quay is going to have more snaps on the field in standard down situations. I think he's going to be our starting linebacker on early downs next to Monty Rice. That's my projection. I could be very wrong there. Nicobe Dean's certainly going to factor in there. But I think by virtue of the fact that Nicobe is going to play a lot more on third down, which if we based off what we saw last year, and the fact that he's also going to be in the rotation, I th- I would put him on the field a little bit more this year than Quay is going to be. I would have Nicobe on the field maybe 35 to 40% of the time, and then Quay Walker on the field about 30 to 35% of the time. And then you throw a guy like Channing Tindall in there. I think his I think he was under 10% last year of our defensive snaps he was in on. I would put him up to maybe 15 to 20-ish percent of our snaps, something like that from a inside linebacker room perspective. Outside linebacker last year, Aziz Ojolari was in on 53% of our snaps defensively. Nolan Smith was on 32%. Jermaine Johnson, 24%. Walter Grant, 16%. Adam Anderson, 11%. Honestly, I don't see those change, those numbers changing all that much this year. I think if there's going to be a change, maybe Nolan eats into Ojolari snaps a little bit uh, because those guys are very similar in what they bring to the table. They have a lot of versatility. They can they can rush the passer. They can play the run. They can set the edge. All those things. So maybe I would see Aziz down closer to the high forties, uh, maybe right at around fifty percent, while Nolan goes up to maybe 40 percent. And then I think Jermaine Johnson, Anderson, Grant, they all have specialized roles, and I don't think that's going to change all that much this year. So I see their snaps staying about the same. Now, in terms of the the second part of that question, how would that change from the first few games, to the last? A couple games. I don't know. Honestly, I don't think it would change that much. I think we are kind of set at both inside linebacker and outside linebacker. Maybe as the season goes on, uh, Nakobe or Quay, they kind of separate themselves from the pack and they become like that full-time guy. Uh, more so that full-time guy. We're just going to rotate. We're just going to have a rotation, but they become like the Tay Crowder to the Monty Rice from last year. And I, they're, they're, They might be fighting that out early in the year and maybe we'll settle on one of those guys as the season goes on. And I, I, I predict that to be Quay right now. But I certainly would not discount Nicobe Dean in that battle. All right. Now we have a trio of recruiting questions from Caleb, Robert, and Alexander. First up is Caleb. He asks, how much does it hurt to lose out on Tony Grimes? And how surprised were you to see him choose the Tar Heels? Um, 
I'm not going to like try to sugarcoat it. Tony Grimes is a really good player. I mean, he's a, he's a five star prospect. I told you guys when I did the, um, I, oh, I did this like the, I don't know, April, the second month of the pandemic. And we'll do another version of this since we've had some movement on the recruiting front. I did my top 10 most wanted. And Tony Grimes was on that list, but he was, he was not in the top five. Um, and I said at the time, I think he's a really, really good player, but I don't know if he's like the best cornerback I've ever seen in my life. And, I, and I'm not saying that as sour grapes. Go back and listen to the, to the episode before he was even committed. And that was when we actually thought he was leaning our way at that time. And I said that about him then. So, yeah, I think he's a really good player, but like he didn't like explode off the screen to me when I watch his tape. And I haven't seen him in person, so got to throw that out there. But, he, but regardless, he's a really, really good high-level player. I, I recognize that. And I wanted him. I would love for him to be on our commitment list. And uh, I'll say this, too. It's not over with Tony Grimes. I don't think it's over with anyone when it comes to pandemic recruiting, to be honest with you. It's just a very different animal. And he actually openly said when he committed to North Carolina, you got to love this. Hey, I'm committing to North Carolina, but I'm still taking visits to all three of my finalists, including Georgia. We were one of his three finalists. So that that makes me question, like, how serious is this commitment? Like, is this a very soft commitment here? Because if you're still taking all your visits, the window is still very much open there. And I question, like, why even commit if, you, if you're making this commitment without having a chance to take all your visits? So I don't know. Um, I'll throw that out there. So it's certainly not all loss on him yet. I guess I was since he's committed to North Carolina, I would make them the favorite to, to, to ultimately get his signature. But I think we're still going to have a chance there. And once we get him on campus again, if we can get him on campus again, if the NCAA allows that, I always say, man, Kirby is one heck of a closer, and I never bet against him when you get a guy on campus like that. So uh, I'm not overly freaking out about it. I know a lot of people are because what else are we going to freak out about right now? Um, nothing else going on in the world to freak out about. Not I swear, not at all. Uh, how surprised did I see him to choose North Carolina? Not really at all, because I had heard a lot of uh, traction moving in North Carolina's favor. And if you can think about this too, guys, location plays a factor in this. He's just a lot closer to Chapel Hill than he is to Athens. He's from Virginia Beach. And Virginia Beach is, like, Athens is twice as far away from his home as Chapel Hill is. So there's a, there's obviously a lot more familiarity with that area. I mean, it's Virginia, North Carolina are bordering states. It's a little bit, it's about an eight and a half, nine hour drive to get from Virginia Beach to Georgia, where it's about a three, depending on traffic, I guess, three to four-ish hour drive to get to Chapel Hill from Virginia Beach. So I think proximity played a role there. And then Mac Brown is, it's kind of like what Kirby did. I mean, Butch Jones did this at Tennessee back in the day. When you are a, a new coach at a school, you have the promise of hope. You're selling, you have something to sell because they don't know any different, right? You're, you're selling, hey, this is what we're going to be. And player, and if you're a good salesman, like Butch Jones was and like Mac Brown is, and like Kirby Smart was when he first got the job here, you can sell that vision. Say, look, we're, we're going to be this and you can be a part of it. You can get on the ground floor and be a part of it. And that's a powerful thing to sell to a player, especially when, you're, when your university is in close proximity to him. And, and I think Mac Brown has done a great job of doing that. So I wasn't surprised by that at all and uh, you know, they also have playing time to sell we don't have that here at all like, I think that was one thing really working against us when it came to Grimes like by the way guys we just signed Keely Ringo uh, top 10 player nationally last year the number one cornerback in the country so you know North Carolina when they're recruiting him is pointing that out saying hey you know Georgia's got a ton of really talented guys in front they just signed Keely Ringo they got Tyreek Stevenson they got Tyson Campbell they got all these guys in front of you it's like where do you fit in the equation the path to playing time here is a lot easier than it is at Georgia and look these guys won't get the NFL they won't be three and out and if they see that the path to playing time at North Carolina when it's closer to you and you can be a part of something new that can be a, that can be a tough thing to turn down. So I think that's why he chose North Carolina 
Um, I don't think it's some indictment on Kirby Smart like some people always want to make things out to be. Anytime we lose out on anybody, I think Kirby Smart is still the best recruiter in the country. But sometimes, you know, things don't always work out. And uh, Tony Grimes right now is committed elsewhere. But I can tell you this, Kirby Smart is not going to be giving up on Tony Grimes. All right. Next, Robert wrote, all seems quiet on the recruiting trail. Do you expect any commitments before the season starts? Yeah, I mean, all is quiet on the recruiting trail for us right now. We haven't gotten a commitment in a while. I guess, was Dylan Fairchild the most recent one? And then you had Lavoisier Carroll who recommitted to us, but we haven't gotten a new commitment in a while here. And it hasn't been a big, like, wow moment. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been a little quiet for us. There's no doubt there. And it's, that isn't abnormal for us when it comes to the summer months under Kirby Smart, but from what I understand, from what I'm hearing, there's a couple of names to watch out for here that could potentially be guys that commit before the season starts. Brock Bowers from Napa out in California. Uh, it's my understanding that he is on his own dime flying all the way across country here to Athens to take an unofficial visit without actually visiting the football facility. He's coming here with his family to just take a tour of Athens and just get the feel for the city. That's, to me, that's huge. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, you're flying all the way across country to take a trip to Athens, Georgia. That tells me that you're highly interested, and you would not be doing that unless you were strongly considering a commitment to Georgia. Maybe you're just kind of like firming up your decision here. So uh, Brock Bowers, a guy that I am extraordinarily high on, is uh, probably the top name to watch out for. James Williams, who released his top two a couple of weeks ago. It was Georgia and Miami. I'm really high on this guy as well, and he's a guy I really, really want because he's – we talk about how hybridization offensively has been the, kind of the, the movement – over the past couple of years in college football. Well, defense has got to match that with hybrid players of their own, and that's what James Williams is. So I'm really excited about him, and I hope that we land him. I think he's moving closer and closer to a decision. And I've heard recently that Marius Mims, I, actually, I read this recently. I didn't hear through the grapevine. I read this somewhere, maybe 247, where um, he was saying, maybe he put it out on Twitter himself. I can't remember. I saw it somewhere where he said that, yeah, I was thinking maybe in October a date for an announcement, but maybe it's more like August. So Marius Mims, Marius Mims, I guess, is another name to watch out for, five-star offensive lineman here in the state of Georgia. All right. Alexander says he will be that guy, saying that we missed out on two big prospects this week in Grimes and Turner, and we're hearing rumors of Williams going to Miami. Are you nervous about our slow recruiting, and how big of a factor is this extended dead period? Will things pick up this fall? Yeah, okay. All right, first off, uh, let me say this, Alexander. Curtis and I, when we, we had this question basically every year, right? And we got it like the last mailbag too. And so we often make a lot of that. Like we get the same question every summer about our slow summer recruiting and is the sky falling? So I appreciate your courage. Because we do make a lot of that. We have some fun. But I appreciate your courage for not caring and throwing out your question anyway. Props to you on that. Uh, and actually, I'm not going to dismiss your question, Alexander. I think it's a good question. More so this time around than it is most summers. Because... This summer, we have a new variable to work with. You mentioned that. This, this coronavirus deal has thrown everything in our society into disarray, and college ball recruiting has not escaped that. There's just no doubt about it. So I am more concerned this summer than I am than I have been in previous summers. I kind of just thrown out, dismissed me like, this just this, this not worry. Let's trust in Kirby. Um, so, like, look, we've gotten, the thing is, like, we've gotten to a point where we are a national brand, okay? We are a national recruiting brand. We are a, a recruiting superpower. And so when, as such, when you are recruiting superpower like that, you are recruiting the best players in the country. It doesn't matter where they are. You can go out to California and get a guy, hopefully like Brock Bowers. You can go get uh, Darnell Washington from Las Vegas last year. You go get those guys, okay? But 
and, and, that, and that's great. That's awesome. I've, I've been all for that since Kirby Smart got here. And a lot of people kind of, you know, they get frustrated with it and say, oh, you, you got to recruit the state of Georgia first. And my, my response to that is always, why? Don't you want the best players? Like, why would you recruit an offensive lineman from Georgia just because he's from Georgia when you think a guy's better and he's out in Texas or California? That doesn't make sense to me. And But this year, I got to give people who kind of take that view a little credit. This year, it might actually matter a little bit because when we are trying to recruit nationally like we do, it's been, with this recruiting dead period, it's been really hard to get guys on campus. Obviously, they're not going to fly into Georgia for Brock Bowers and come check things out on their own dime. But if you were like, let's say, a Marius Mims, you could come up to Georgia. You come up to Athens, and, and you live in the state of Georgia. You can drive a couple hours, and you can just take take in the city, get a feel for the vibe, that kind of whole thing. Now, you can't visit, you can't like talk to the coaches or anything, but you can still visit the city. And I, I do think that's working against us to a degree, just the lack of proximity of some of these top-level prospects that we are going after. So I think right now that is certain, the fact that we can't get these guys on campus. And that's what it's all about. It's all about getting guys on campus. That's a huge part of what Kirby Smart does. One of the things that makes Kirby Smart so effective is that he does an incredible job. And he's just, there's so many reasons why he's a good recruiter. Uh, He's organized. He's completely relentless in how he goes about doing this. But he does a great job of recruiting the parents or whoever the influencer might be. Like he, he does a good job of identifying who the decision maker is in the family or in this kid's recruitment because it's different for every kid. Sometimes it's the mama, sometimes it's the dad, sometimes it's the uncle, sometimes it's the high school coach. He does an incredible job of identifying who that person is and then going out and actually actively recruiting them and getting those people on campus. That's when you really, really heavily recruit mama and daddy and high school coach if he's the one coming in. Um, to make these visits with the players. And Kirby has not been able to do that. He hasn't been able to work his charm on those people, those decision makers. So I think that hurt us um, pretty significantly through this whole pandemic process. But I'll say this too. It's going to be very interesting to see how solid, I kind of alluded to this with Tony Grimes, how solid a lot of these pandemic commitments are once visits are allowed again, once campuses open up again and instantly allows teams, allows prospects to actually come visit those those programs once again i'm gonna be very curious to see how many of these pandemic commitments actually stick is grimes gonna be one of those guys dallas turner's another one that just committed to alabama was really high on our list as a, as a pass rusher he's like i think he's maybe made maybe one visit to here for a junior day or to athens for a junior day once we're able to get him back on campus if he's willing to come back on campus could that potentially change things for a guy like that so i i'm i'm not i'm certainly not in like Red alert, freak out mode. But I, I will admit, Alexander, I'm a little bit more concerned this summer than I have been in previous summers, just because of the inability to get guys on campus and the fact that we're we're some of the our top prospects are out of state guys. And I think this year, if 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 this whole idea of you, you need to recruit your state first and foremost, if there was ever a year for that to take precedent, it's this year. Uh, I don't really believe in that in uh, on a year by year basis, but this year it might actually pay off for you if that was your strategy. So um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out once we can get back, get get open and get some guys back on campus. Okay. The final group of questions deals with COVID-19's impact on the college football season. We pushed these to the end of the show because we know there's a lot of corona fatigue out there, but we did want to make sure to answer all the questions that were sent in. Coronavirus fatigue? What? I can't get enough of it. I mean, come on. (laughs) 
All right, GS Eagles fan 05 asks, do you think there will even be a college football season this year? So we have year? a Georgia Southern fan listening to us? I guess so. I'm assuming? I guess so. Rock on, dude. Um, cool, we'll take it. Uh, yeah, so, oh my God. I Look, oh, I... Thank you, you've now had his depression. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, come out it, in full it, force. I'm triggered now. Uh, look, let me just start by saying this. I don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking. I'm not an expert. I'm not. A, I'm not a scientist. What I do is I independent. I, I'm the kind of. I'm trying to look at the data independently. When I look at the data, I, I. I don't think there's a reason. I don't. I don't think there's a reason that we shouldn't have be able to have college football. I'm not saying without some mitigation efforts or anything like that. But I think we should be. I think that sports should be open again. Okay. Obviously with some adjustments, but that's just me. But the until the general public. Stops freaking out about cases like that. That number. I'm not even talking about hospitalizations or deaths. It's just focused on cases. When you see like today, Florida, ten thousand cases. They set a one day high. Like when people see the, the word cases and they see a big number next to it, they freak out and they lose their minds. So like I just the way that people react to it and they perceive it until that changes. I think like it's possible there's not going to be a college football season. And I, and I know I'm I'm going back on what I've said since the beginning of the pandemic. I still I'm still optimistic. And I believe it's going to happen. Maybe that's because I have to believe it's going to happen for my own sanity. <laughs> Necessarily very possible. We did have to edit out five minutes of crying. We didn't. No such thing. You were crying. When? I'm just kidding. Hey, real men cry. I'm not ashamed if I was crying, but I was not crying. Uh, I haven't gotten there yet because I'm trying to believe it's not. Now, if, if someone You're comes out... You're living in denial. Yes, exactly. If someone yeah. comes out and says, oh, college ball is not happening this year, oh, there'll be more than five minutes of crying. Okay. I mean, come on. That's just, just gonna... Just give you a bottle of bourbon. Let you drink your words just away. Just dig my dig six feet in the ground. Just throw me in there. Okay. Uh, just, no, I can't. Not I can't. Not a little morbid or anything. Well, I mean, come on. I, when I say I live for this, I I mean it. <laughs> I don't, I'm not lying. Um, so look, yeah, I, I I think it's there's more cause for concern now than there than I thought there was back in April because I think the perce- I, what I thought was the perception of this would change if we got in the summer. I don't think the perception of it has changed. Uh, among the general population, or at least the decision makers, the people in power to make decisions, they're being influenced, and I don't think the way that they perceive it has changed. So yeah, I, I think there's certainly some question of whether there's going to be a college football season, and I and I get it to a degree, but what I look at is like, okay, people who are of the college football age, unless you have a pre-existing condition, you're almost at not quite zero, but very close to zero percent risk of dying from the coronavirus. Okay, that's that's just what the data says. So from that perspective, I'm sitting here like, why? Why can't these guys go play? Like, well, they might get coronavirus. I'm sitting here saying, well, why does that matter? Why does it matter if they have, like the fact that someone has coronavirus, it, to me, honestly, and look, I, I'm, I know people are so tired of hearing about this. It's just my one, one man's opinion. Why does that matter? What matters is, are you sick enough to go to the hospital and are people dying in that age group? And it's just not happening. Like, I know, Charlie, how many times have you heard now that we've got uh, programs having guys back on campus, well, Clemson or LSU had this num- this many guys test positive. How many times you right? Hear that? And I want to know: Are they showing symptoms? Most of them or do know. They just have it. It's like we don't track who has a headache ask, every okay. day. Let me ask you that. You're exactly well. Yeah, well, well, I will say coronavirus is more than a headache. Well, but, I mean, yeah, I understand I get you're saying, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we don't track how many people have the flu every year like this. Right. We don't and have a ticker. We don't have a ticker on scene that says, "By the minute, here's how many people have coronavirus." Or, here's, here's how many people have the flu. Obviously, more serious. To a certain segment of the population, yes. it's more. Con- 
For most people, if you look at the data, it's way more contagious, but less lethal for the vast majority of the population. Now, if you're 80 and older and you get coronavirus, there's a good chance you're going to die. So like you need to definitely watch out. But I mean, from a, in terms of like the number of people that are dying in most age demographics, it's not an insane number of people. Now, more people are getting it because it's more contagious. But my thing is like, okay, so you hear anytime someone tests positive, the, the you're going to see it blasted all over the media, right? 60 people at Clemson, however many at LSU, right? Have, so don't you believe that if you if there was any one of them that were hospitalized or had died from it, you would definitely hear about it? Mm-hmm. You would certainly yeah. hear about it. Have you heard about anyone? No. Not one. But you I have not heard have one college player, yeah, of all the guys who have tested positive, they came back. You have not heard about one of them being even hospitalized, yeah. let alone dying, right? But and you know you would have. It's up to each individual athlete because they are still kids, yeah. and their families to decide if they should or should not play. I totally agree with that. They should have the choice. Yeah. There, there's no. I, I have no problem with that whatsoever. If if you feel you're at risk and you're you, you don't think the the potential reward is worth the risk, then don't play. I and I, I will support you 100. percent But this idea that college age kids, if they get coronavirus, are all like it, it's all over. Everyone's gonna die. Like well, and then that report in Alabama came out that college students are having COVID parties to oh see my who. God. Yeah. Who, to see who gets it first, and then they get a payout. Yes. Like, yeah, I know. Or some sort of reward. I know that's that was just insanity. So like, there, in the college football, there's a lot more complications with it associated with it than it, like a pro sport because these are, for the most, like, they're unpaid. Like they actually they get some money, they get a stipend, right? But and they get a scholarship, but they're not getting like millions of dollars right no. now. So and so like that whole conversation is certainly a part of this and then you have the large like these guys you can't really like you can like the NBA they're quarantining the NBA basically right they're putting them in a bubble you can't do that with college football or it's tougher to do that with college football players because they are back on campus with 35,000 other students right so the potential for them to get coronavirus is a lot higher than it would for a pro sport league a guy in a pro sport league like the NBA who's in a bubble right so I think that's something you got to factor in as well but again I go back for me this is just me and I know and I'm not trying to make any kind of political statement at all. I just, when I'm looking at it, my question is, okay, I get it. You don't want people to test positive because first you have to test positive before you ever die from it. But if, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the data, people in the demographic of college players are just simply not dying. And they're not, even, they're not even really getting sick. Most of them are asymptomatic. So again, why does it matter if they get the coronavirus? The most of them. Now, if you have a, a pre-existing condition, don't play. But... I don't know. I get like some of the coaches are older than my pre-existing conditions. I understand that. But then I would say for them, those coaches, then you just take the year off. I know that sounds crazy, but I don't know. So to go back to your original question, is there going to be college football this year? I'm still hopeful. I'm still optimistic, but I am less optimistic than I was maybe even just a month ago. Just because of this, the current surge and kind of I guess what's been the general reaction to the current surge in cases, not the surge in deaths, which is really, I guess, ultimately what matters. In my opinion, but the surge in cases, I just I I think there's more questions about that now than there were was a month ago. Okay, Jeremy asks, do you believe an individual conference like the Pac-12 or Big Ten will shut down their season separately from the Southern conferences? And if so, how do you think this would impact the playoffs and full season? I think this is a great question, Jeremy. I think this is one of the issues with college football in general. There's no central decision-making body. Uh, the NCAA can't really inf- like since the Power Five separated from the NCAA. A couple years ago, years ago I guess now, the the NCAA is basically they're feckless when it comes to trying to run things. When it comes, I mean, the, the NCAA doesn't even give out the national championship trophy in college football. They don't. 
the they have nothing to do with the college football playoff, nothing whatsoever. I guess they set recruiting grounds and guidelines and that kind of thing, and they hand out punishments if you step afoul of that. But that, and if you're paying players, but that's about it. But in terms of like, hey, every league is going to do this. There, that does not exist in college football. There is no commissioner. There is no college football czar. And I think at times like this is where we, and most of the time it works out well because individual conferences do what they want and they kind of loosely work together. It's kind of like a confederation, if you think about it. That's a loosely aligned group of conferences that choose to work together when it benefits them. And they don't really have a central decision-making body that really has any kind of power or authority at all, honestly. Um, so and most of the time that works out really well because conferences kind of do things that fits their needs and their desires and that whole nine yards. But this might be the one situation where it really would have paid off to have some sort of college ball czar to be making decisions and, 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 and kind of getting some sort of uh, – kind of generating some sort of alignment between the conferences. So, yeah, I think it's possible because the conferences are basically free to do what they want more or less in terms of are we going to play or not. Are we going to allow our, our member institutions to have fans or not? So I, I think the Pac-12, I would, wouldn't be shocked if – let's say we have a, have a season, but, but – the Pac-12 programs don't allow fans, all right. Whereas SEC might allow limited capacity. I think that could still be a possibility. And you know, I think I saw today USC announced that most undergrads are going to be doing online classes. So does that affect college football there? Like I don't know. So yeah, I think it's certainly possible because these again these conferences are free to essentially do whatever they want for the most part. All right. Last question: With COVID nineteen potentially impacting this season. Jamie asks, how important is it now more than ever to have depth at each position? He says he thinks if a player tests positive before a game, there's no way they play that game or maybe even the next game. Yeah, I think that's a, a, an extraordinarily even good point. two after that, so three yeah. games. It's an extraordinarily good point. Yeah, I think depth is going to – if we have a season this year, I think depth is going to play a huge role in that, and that's one of the, another reason why I'm very high on our ch- chances to actually make a run this year is because we have built such incredible quality depth really on both sides of the ball, almost every position. There's a few positions, maybe safety, where I don't, I'm concerned. We're getting there at receiver. We kind of addressed that issue with this year's recruiting class. We have so much depth. So I think we are built to withstand some attrition from coronavirus more so than just about every other college football program outside of maybe the, the top teams out there, the Alabamas, the LSUs, the Ohio States, the Clemsons, you know, the big-time recruiting powers. Those are the teams that can withstand that. Think about last year, Charlie. We had all these guys. Think about Adam Anderson, a guy that's super talented. We had trouble finding a spot for him on the field. Like We have all these guys. Tyreek Stevenson, incredibly talented. Have trouble finding him a spot on the field. Devon Wilson. We have all these guys that we can't even get on the field, that we want to get on the field, because there's just not enough play, plays to go around for all these guys. So I think that is something that could really benefit us if we do indeed end up, hopefully, God willing, having a college football season. Yeah, great point there. But uh, all right, guys, that does it for today here on the Glory UGA podcast. Really appreciate you listening to us here today, closing out the mailbag. We'll be back later next week. Hope everyone has a very fun and safe 4th of July. If you're going to the lake or something like that, have a great time. Not my thing, but you do you and have fun, Charlie. Have a great time, but we're out of here for Charlie. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.